0: Sketches from Scripture presents Light in the Darkness, a teaching series from the stories of Genesis. Light in the Darkness is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the narrative structure and style of the book of Genesis as context for better understanding of Scripture. This will help us trust more in these scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale, and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events in real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast scatters your darkness and makes the great light abundant in your life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. Welcome once again to a study of Genesis, calling it Light in the Darkness, based on that first sentence of Genesis. Uh, just want to again mention the uh, Five Coffees in a Book, and so you can go to fivecoffeesinabook.com and that is going to take you to a site where you can get the free uh, discussion guide, the free ebook of The Darkness World Over Her. It's something that you can discuss with people that you know and really deepen friendships. So, once again, it's fivecoffeesandabook.com. And you'll know you're there, you'll see the Five Coffees logo. So, that's something that is free. And um, if you've already done it or if you already have the book, would you share it with somebody else? Would you share either the Facebook page or the website or um, there's an Instagram also where all the questions uh, you can just swipe through on Instagram or you can swipe through the photos on Facebook. We've made it very easy. However you want to do it, it's all there. So um, go there, check that out. And again, please share it. I want as many people to know about it as possible. September, which seems like a long way away, that's less than six months away now. September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month and I would really like to have a lot of my friends already knowing about five coffees in a book sharing that with other people and uh, so that way by the time we get to September there's a lot of people that know about it already and we can really put a blast out in September my uh, book God rest you merry gentlemen it's available paperback ebook Uh, you can get that on Amazon uh, you can go to skidmorep.com slash books and you can find all my books. And um, so this is my first novel. I put it out in December. It was supposed to be a short story, ended up being a novel. And uh, I think that uh, you'll enjoy it if you like some of the things that we're talking about here. I try to employ some of the storytelling concepts that I've learned from scripture and to put them into the the books that I write. The book that I'm working on right now is very closely related to what we're talking about. That's one reason I wanted to get this class back out and dust it off. I thought you might benefit from it as well. So we're doing it live. But uh, I wanted to go back through those old Genesis notes because it has to do with the story that I'm writing now. Uh, It's a story about a a Jewish family and uh, the the grandfather of the family um, has a, a vision, a dream. And he believes that God has spoken to him and, and made him a promise, very similar to uh, Abraham, as we've looked at in uh, Genesis so far. And so I'm working on that story, and I would love for you to enjoy it when it comes out. It'll be a while, but i um, trying to chip away at it a little bit every day and hope that I can continue to do that. So let's get into the study of Genesis. I got a lot of material that I want to cover. Again, I won't be reading much of it. I'll be reading a few bits and pieces, but I really want to try and get through from 15 to 21. So it's kind of a big chunk, uh, but there's just a few things I want to touch on uh, in each place as we go through. Um, So just very, very quick review. Genesis 1 through 11 starts with the creation of the cosmos and gradually drills down until we're meeting one person as the person of Abram. And this is so that the Lord can uh, show us that he is God over the entire universe, but that he comes down and speaks to us as as individual readers, as individual hearers of the word. Very important storytelling functionality that is happening, the way all of that is laid out. So again, there are two things in Genesis. One is the content. These are things that really happen. These are real people. I've been to many of the places that we're reading about, and uh, these things really happen. They're factual, but it is also being told to us as a story. Right. It's not given to us even really as a history book. It's not given to us like chronicles. It's not given to us, um, you know, as a a science textbook or anything like that. It's given to us as story. And so we must understand what the story is trying to tell us. So we have the facts, the things that happened, but we also have the story that we're looking at. So apart from, yes, God created the cosmos and uh, yes, God chose Uh, Abram, we're looking at the story things. What is the story trying to tell us about our relationship with God, our relationship with uh, the created world, our relationship with each other, uh, God's relationship with us? One of the themes that we've seen from the very first verse and is continues to go all the way through Genesis is this idea of holiness. Now, the word holy is never really used in Genesis, but the idea of holiness is that you're set apart for a higher purpose. And you see that, again, right in the first sentence. So not the first English verse, but in the first actual sentence, uh, the first three verses or so of Genesis 1 are, are, are one sentence. And that in that first sentence, we see God hovering over all the chaos and darkness and speaking, and it's his word that separates That creates light and then separates light from darkness. And so we see that over and over again, the separation, pulling the light away from the darkness. The darkness is scattered and the light is made more and more abundant. So God is constantly creating order from chaos and then filling that uh, ordered space with abundance. We see that in the creation story of Genesis 1, and we see it in very um, metaphorical, metaphysical ways um, through the rest of Genesis Constantly scattering darkness, scattering sin, scattering evil, and keeping a remnant of light so that it can be made abundant. We see it in Adam. We see it in Cain and Abel. We see it in Noah. And um, we see it in Tower of Babel. And now we're seeing it in the story of Abram, soon to be known as Abraham. So we got into Genesis 12 and 13 and 14 last night. So you can go back and check those out if you missed those and need to catch up. And we have now into the story of Abram. And so far, we've seen God make this promise to Abram, that Abram is, uh, he's going to bless the world through Abram, that Abram, his uh, family is going to own uh, the land, what would come to be known the land of Canaan, and that it would be his his seed, his children that would own this land. Now, Abram at the time that this promise is made is 75, his wife is 74, she is uh, barren, she is passed her time for having children, and he has no children. So, Uh, Abraham's kind of wondering, okay, how how is this going to happen? In Genesis 13 and 14, we get introduced to Lot. This is Abram's nephew. And Lot has this propensity for going after the world. And so he kind of becomes a contrast to Abraham. Abraham is kind of trusting in God, and Lot is pretty much going after the world. And so we have this sort of Abraham versus Lot, this trusting in God, tent dweller versus uh, trusting in man, city dweller. And this is a Repeated theme throughout Genesis. And again, it just hammers home that theme of Genesis where God is saying, remove yourself from the wicked world and uh, be a blessing to me and all my people. This is the covenant that God makes with Abraham. He's made it with Abram three times already. Uh, God has repeated this promise. Even so, Abram has already tried to take it into his own hands a couple of times, and we'll see some more of that. And then right at the end of 14, we were introduced to a man named Melchizedek, Melchizedek, um, who uh, whose name means King of Righteousness, he was the King of Salem, he was a priest king, and we saw how the book of Hebrews talks um, that uh, Jesus is the real Melchizedek, Jesus is the real priest king forever. And so that gets us into Genesis 15, and we're going to zip through um, a lot of this. So um, let me um, just read just a little bit here right at the beginning of 15. Uh, So, uh, uh, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Master, my Lord, uh, what can you give me when I'm going to my end childless? And the steward of my household is Damasek Eliezer, or Eliezer from Damascus. And Abram said, now remember what we said about Ancient dialogues, that there's always two people talking. And so if one person speaks and then it says, and that person said, that means the other person did not respond. So notice that this time it's not God who, you know, usually it's, and the Lord said, because the human didn't respond. This time it's the opposite. It's, it's the person speaking. Abram is speaking to the Lord saying, um, you know, what can you give me when I'm going to my end childless? And then the next thing we see is, and Abram said, that indicates to us, that lets the hearer know the Lord did not respond. And this goes back to this idea of patience, of waiting, of seeming unanswered prayers. Uh, The promise was made to Abram when he was 75. A lot of time has passed. Wars have happened. And still, there doesn't appear to be anything like what God has said happening in Abram's life. And he asks God about it, and God remains silent, so that he asks again. So continuing here verse, around verse 3 or so, and Abram said, look, to me you have given no seed, and here a member of my household is to be my heir. He's repeating himself. And now the word of the Lord came to him, saying, notice it says, and now, it's indicating that some time has passed, and, and now... He's going to give him an answer. Uh, this one will not be your heir, but he who issues from your loins will be your heir. So first, Abram's kind of thinking, well, you know, maybe Lot is going to be my heir. And so I need to go save him in this war. And now he's saying, well, now one of my slaves born in my house, uh, one of my servants born in my house, Eliezer from Damascus. Now he's going to be my heir. And God keeps reminding him, no, it's going to be one of your seeds. It's going to be one of your children. Um. And going on about verse seven, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit. And he said, oh, my master, Lord, how shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said to him, take me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old she goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took all of these and clove them through the middle, split them in half. And each set his part opposite the other, but the birds he did not cleave. And carrion birds came down on the carcasses, and Abram drove them off. And as the sun was about to set, a deep slumber fell upon Abram, and now a great dark dread came falling upon him. And he, that is the Lord, said to Abram, Know well that your seed shall be strangers in a land not theirs, and they shall be enslaved and afflicted four hundred years. But upon the nation for whom they slave i will bring judgment and afterward they shall come forth with great substance as for you you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried in ripe old age and in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the amorites is not yet full and just as the sun had set there was a thick gloom and look a smoking brazier with a flaming torch that passed between those parts on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your seed, I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kenmanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Gergeshite and the Jebusite. Okay. So what's happening here? God has him cut these animals in half and then the fire, the flame pots kind of walk, go, go through between the pieces. What is this about? So this was actually a very common ancient ritual when two people were making a covenant with each other. All right. So what would happen is uh, some animal would be cleaved in half and both parties would walk through the cloven animal to signify, may this happen to us if we break the covenant. If one of us breaks the covenant, may this happen to the one who breaks the covenant. That's what the ancient ritual is about. But instead, what happens here, both of them don't walk through. Abram doesn't walk through. Only the Lord, signified by the flame pots, only the Lord walks through the split pieces. The Lord is saying, I'm making this covenant. It's unilateral. I'm making it to you, Abram. And if this covenant is broken, may I be like these animals. And of course, we know from the history of the people of Israel, the covenant was broken many many times not by god but by man by his by his children by god's by god's people and the covenant was broken and it was on the cross in the person of jesus that god took on the punishment of this very covenant so again the entire bible is about jesus we see the setup here and we see the delivery in the passion plays of the gospels also note the animals that are used here they are the exact animals that are used later in the sacrifices in the tabernacle and the temple you see those sacrifices in the tabernacle and the temple they're not arbitrary they are calling back this very moment the covenant that god made with abram and his descendants it's not arbitrary it's calling back this very moment and it's only when jesus becomes the sacrifice and is broken for us that the sacrifices can now end. Um, okay. Also right here at the end, you see the listing of all the people. That's the setup for the impending conquest. Everything we're going to see in Joshua and beyond uh, after the Torah. And the people who live there now are very evil. They're increasing in evil, but God's kind of saying, uh, you know, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. What he's saying is, yeah, they're not. they're not quite evil enough yet, but by the time you come back, they will be. And so we see that, yes, there's lots of war in the Old Testament. This is way beyond the the, the Torah. Yes, we see that. But it's God taking care of these descendants of Canaan, many of them, right? These are the descendants of Canaan, the descendants of a dreadful, sinful act. And it is the correction of that evil. Because remember, God says, I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but will not let the guilty go unpunished. This is how he reveals himself to Moses uh, a few books from now. Okay, Uh, Genesis chapter 16. Uh, Abram is still getting kind of fidgety because he doesn't have a kid. Abram listens to Sarai. Sarai and Abram decide to take matter into their own hands. Sarai says, take Hagar. So he has a son with Hagar. We learn at the end of this chapter that Abram is 86. So you can hardly blame him. Eleven years have passed since this promise that he would have a son. And no, it's not Lot. No, it's not the servant in your house. Okay, well, I guess I'll have a son with, with Hagar. He's taking matters into his own hands. And of course, as soon as this happens, Sarai immediately becomes bitter against Hagar and blames Abram. This is because of you. This harkens back to the first sin in Genesis, where everybody's pointing fingers at each other. Right? And uh, Abram says, well, do whatever you want with her. And Sarai sends the pregnant Hagar away. In the second half of Genesis 16, finally, the Lord speaks. And here's what's interesting. He doesn't speak to Abram. He doesn't speak to Sarai. Who does he speak to? He speaks to Hagar. So the Lord is here and it's, it says that, you know, the Lord or the Lord's messenger or the angel of God kind of depends on uh, which verse you're looking at and what translation you have. And you don't need to get all caught up in that. Um, it just means the Lord is, is, is speaking to her. He may be doing it through, uh, some sort of visible thing. He may be doing it through an, an, an angel. By the way, the word angel, both the, uh, Hebrew form of it and the Greek form of it, ju- it just means messenger. In fact, our English word angel is just the transl- transliteration of the Greek angelos, which just simply means messenger. And it can just, it can even refer to a human courier. So um, when you see the word angel, Uh, Sometimes you have to kind of determine from the context, is this something metaphysical that's happening, or is this just a a person that's coming to to deliver a message? So here where you see, you know, about the angel of God or or the Lord's messenger, you don't need to get confused by that. The the bottom line is God is speaking to Hagar. He's delivering her a message. Bible Project Podcast, which I mentioned a couple of lessons ago, they have um, a a great podcast episode that deals with this very idea, the angel of God. And uh, if you want to know more about that, you want to get. Dive down in that and get all heady and academic about that. They have a great podcast that will help you do that. But don't let it bog you down. God is speaking to Hagar. And what does he tell her? He says uh, that he's going to take care of her. Right. He's going to take care of the son. And so now we go on to um, Genesis 17. And Abram was 99 years old. Okay, more time has passed. So he's 75 when the promise first comes. He's 86 when Ishmael's born. And now he's 99 years old. And what happens? And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk in my presence and be blameless. And I will grant my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you very greatly. So this is now, I think, number seven. This is the seventh time God has repeated this promise to Abram. So we see it happening a whole bunch of times in a compressed format. But you remember, this is over 24 years now have passed since the first time. So this is time number seven. This is sort of the divine number. And what comes about? We're about to see the establishment of circumcision. So uh, what we see here, let's just keep on reading. And Abram flung himself on his face and God spoke to him saying, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations, and no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you father to a multitude of nations, and I will make you most abundantly fruitful. So again, again, you see him just, uh the abundance that's happening here, bringing order from chaos and then creating abundance in the space of order. And they'll have the whole land of Canaan. We'll skip down to around verse 9. And God said to Abraham, again, A, it's noting Abram had no response at this point, and it's using his name Abraham here for the first time, right? And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my commandment, you and your seed after you through their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every male among you must be Circumcised, you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Eight days old, every male among you shall be circumcised through your generations, even slaves born in the household and those purchased with silver from any foreigner who is not of your seed. Those born in your household, etc., etc. So we see why Abraham has uh, <clears throat> down uh, again, verse seventeen. Abraham flung himself on his face, and he laughed. So we give uh, Sarah a hard time for laughing, but here Abraham laughs, right? Abraham, he flings himself on his face and he laughs saying to himself, can a hundred year old man uh, bear a child? Will a 99 year old Sarah give birth? And now Abraham Abraham tries to bargain with God at this point. Uh, Would that Ishmael might live in your favor. Again, he's still trying to plug this Ishmael thing. And God says, no, Sarah, your wife's gonna bear you a son. You're gonna call his name Isaac, which means laughter since he's just laughed, and I'll establish my covenant with him. I'll take care of Ishmael. He's going to be the father of a, of a, of a big nation, a great people, but I, I'm going to make my covenant with you. And so what we see here is, and we'll see it again, a, a distinct clarification that it's, it is Isaac, not Ishmael, that is the chosen son. So I don't know a lot about Islam, but from my um, Muslim friend uh, back in Middle Tennessee, uh, he tells me, no, 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 it's Ishmael. Ishmael's the chosen son. Right. They see themselves as descendants of Ishmael, Ishmael's people. And so a lot of people may look at this and say, well, this was added in in later times to make a clarification between Judaism and uh, Islam. Right. Um, No, no, no. Don't listen to Islam. It's the Jews. It's Isaac as the chosen son. Well, any kind of argument like that is laid to rest when you see that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have found a snippet of papyrus that contains this exact passage from Genesis, verses 18 through 22 or so. We found that in um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's in there. It's dated from about 300 B.C. to about 68 A.D., somewhere in that range about 600 years before Islam comes on the scene. So this is a clarification that God makes in Scripture, most likely before the birth of Christ. Certainly, if you uh, believe, and that, that and that's just the copy. That's just the copy that we have, right? That's not even the original. The original, of course, dates, if it's the book of Moses, dates back much, much farther than that. But God already here clarifying very specifically, no, no, it's Isaac, not Ishmael, who is the chosen one. Uh, by the way, just as a side note, uh, comedian, Christian comedian Michael Jr. has a hilarious clip about circumcision that uh, I will not take time to show you and I'm not even sure technically uh, if I even am able to do that. But um, I do have the link and I'm going to drop it in the comments right now. You can watch it uh, a little later. Uh, and it's uh, really funny. It's sort of uh, from the point of view of one of the servants Finding out that he's about to be circumcised by Abraham, <laughs> and it's pretty funny. Michael Jr. is great. He, I've seen him in person a, a number of times. I've watched, uh, listened to a lot of his albums. Watched a lot of his stuff on YouTube. He is uh, funny. He's clean. He loves Jesus, and he's got a purpose to his comedy. In fact, this Sunday at 5 p.m. Central, so 6 p.m. Eastern, he's releasing his new comedy special which is called More Than Funny. And he's doing it on Facebook, I guess like this, like a Facebook Live. They are streaming it. It was set to be released around this time. With everything that's going on, they've decided to just release it streaming so that everyone can watch it. And uh, I'll post another link uh, in here that where he talks about that. This clip is called Comedy Relief. And uh, he talks a little bit uh, about this upcoming special. But one reason I wanted to mention it is he had a sentence When talking about this comedy relief special, but more than funny, and he uh, was saying that there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of paranoia now, and that we need laughter. That laughter is good. It's good like a medicine, and that we need some medicine right now. And he says this phrase. He says, "I believe laughter and fear have a hard time living together." And isn't that been the story of Genesis? That you see uh, the 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 People who are making sinful decisions, they're running off in fear, they're building towers, they're building walls, they're building cities to hide in and um, to uh, find security in, in themselves. And here we have Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and God laughing. And so laughter and fear have a hard time living together. So if you're not doing anything Sunday night um, around 6 p.m., check that out. It'd be a good time to spend with family. Okay. Um Moving on, Genesis 18 and 19. This is the very exciting stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we read mostly about Sodom. Why? Because that's where Lot has decided to live. He set up his tent outside of Sodom. And by the time we get to, to here, it appears uh, he's got a place uh, in, in, in the city with, with walls and a door. So he's very much assimilated to the people of Sodom. And we see God uh, come to Abraham and again, they talk about the, the the child that he's going to have. This is promise number eight, by the way, in verse 10. And so then they, uh, God decides, I'm going to tell Abraham what it is that I'm about to do as he's looking over at Sodom. And so uh, we look around um, um, verse uh, 20, 21 or so. Again, my sorry, my verses are, are um, weird how I've got it. It's kind of in paragraph form. So, okay. Okay. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah, how great their offense is very grave. Let me go down and see whether as the outcry that has come to me, they have dealt destruction. And if not, I shall know. So this is what the Lord says about Sodom and Gomorrah, that the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah, how great their offense is very grave. Notice he doesn't say the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, how great their offense is very grave. God goes to cast judgment, but he does it because of the outcry, because of of the people who are being sinned against. We don't get a whole lot of details about everything going on in Sodom, but we get some of it. We see enough in the story with Lot and, and the messengers coming in, the angels being there with Lot and what the men of the town are trying to do. We can imagine how the women in Sodom are treated. We can imagine how the weaker men in Sodom are treated. We can imagine how the children in Sodom are treated. And you can Im- you can imagine as they huddle in the corner in fear, the outcry that they must make to the God that made them. And God hears the outcry, and He's coming to bring justice. So He tells Abraham what He intends to do. And so Abraham goes into this bargaining. Uh, Abraham stepped forward and said, "Will you really wipe out the innocent with the guilty? Perhaps there may perhaps there may be fifty innocent within the city. Will you really wipe out the place?" and not spare it for the sake of 50 innocent within it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put to death the innocent with the guilty, making innocent and guilty the same. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do justice? <laughs> well, isn't that what the Lord is intending to do, is justice, right? But Adam, uh, Abraham is making an appeal here. And so the Lord says, And the Lord said, Should I find in Sodom 50 innocent within the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. And Abraham spoke up and said, "Uh, here I pray I have presumed to speak to my Lord when I'm but dust and ashes. And he goes on and he negotiates and he keeps sort of getting the number down and he gets it all the way down to 10. And the Lord agrees, hey, if I find 10, we won't do it. And for some reason, Abram stops at 10. Now we don't know why, we can only speculate. But let's think about this just for a second. You got Lot, you got Lot's wife. You got Lot's two daughters. You got Lot's two pending sons-in-law. Even if they end up not coming with them, even if you want to count the two angels, you're only up to eight people, right? But if you're talking about Lot and his family, that's six people. Can you imagine if he'd gone down to five, and um, the the negotiations had ended? And, you know, he would then know, okay, somebody, somebody in my family, somebody in Lot's family, um, must not be innocent. So uh, maybe that's one reason that he stops at 10. So the angels go down, they beg and they plead with Lot. Uh, they say, run this way. And Lot started bargain, uh, bargaining with the angels. He's bargaining with these messengers. And rather than listening to him, he doesn't trust them. Right? Remember, remember, Lot is the, the, the contrast between Abraham's trust. We see Lot trusting in himself. And he says, let me go to this place, this village over here, which is called Zoar. Now, Zoar means Small. Now, that probably means because it's a small village, but it also might be kind of a commentary on Lot's faith, right? So, the God himself has come to save Lot, and Lot is saying, let me trust in what is small. So, Lot didn't believe the Lord that he'd be safe. And then once Lot and his daughters, of course, uh, Lot's wife turns and looks back, turns to a pillar of salt. So, it's just Lot and his two daughters are left, and they are living in this cave, fearing they'll never see human contact again, and the daughters get him drunk, impregnate themselves with their father. That's where we get Moab, which means from father, and Ben-Ami is the name of the other child, which means son of my father's people. This is the, um, the beginning of the Moabites and the Ammonites, two people like the Canaanites that uh, Israel is not allowed to, uh, to intermarry within. And again, it's not a genetic thing. It's not a, a race thing. It is a worldview thing because we see Ruth, who is a Moabitess, comes to uh, back home with her her mother-in-law and uh, ends up marrying into the lineage of King David, the lineage of Christ. All right. So there's no problem there, but it's the, the problem with the intermarrying, it's about worldview. And you see that concept going on all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Book of Ezra, I think, is, is another big place for uh, that kind of idea. So again, only 10, I'll spare it for only 10. He doesn't spare it for only 10. Uh, you have uh, the two sons-in-laws, which stay behind. You have Lot's wife, which looks back. You have Lot uh, who doesn't trust the Lord and gets drunk. You have Lot's two daughters that impregnate themselves and commit incest, commit, impregnate themselves by their father. So what's the, what's the number? What's the final tally here? How many innocent people, how many good people were there in Sodom? The answer is zero. That's the lesson of Genesis so far. Remember, people are evil from their youth, right? Of course, God is willing to save the city if there are innocent, but there are no innocent people. All have fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul says in uh, Romans. So how many humans were righteous? The answer from the Bible is once again, very clear. The answer is zero. None were righteous. Okay, now we're into Genesis 20, booking right along here. Uh, Genesis 20. I turn there. Again, I'm reading from Robert Alter's translation and commentary entitled The Five Books of Moses. He's also translated the entire Hebrew scriptures. The e book, of course, is easier to highlight and copy and paste and make notes, but the hardbacks are beautiful. They're really gorgeous. It's a really well done uh, set of books. Okay, Genesis chapter 20. Here we have uh, Abraham taking his wife Sarah and he's traveling to a new place where there's this guy named Abimelech. And a second time, Abraham repeats the lie that Sarah is his sister. So after all this, where we're trying to we're trying to make Abraham the good guy, he just he just won't do it, right? So in case you thought changing his name was somehow going to make him a good person, or if you thought that God making this covenant with him was somehow going to make him a good person. Sorry, he's still lying, right? And again, in this chapter, we see that the Lord doesn't speak to Abraham, but he speaks to Abimelech. So when Abraham sins, God doesn't speak to Abram. He speaks to Pharaoh. He doesn't speak to Abram. He speaks to Hagar. He doesn't speak to Abraham. He speaks to Abimelech. By the way, Abimelech is not his name, but it's a title like Pharaoh or Caesar. It's the royal title for the Philistine rulers. Remember, the first hearers of Genesis would have been post-Exodus, right? They would know all about how terrible Egypt is, and they know all about the Philistines and the land in which they are headed and living. So this Abimelech guy, Not a good guy to the first hearers, right? Abimelech, royal title for the Philistine rulers. So Pharaoh's giving him lessons in morality. The Lord's speaking to Hagar, and the Lord's now speaking to Abimelech. In verse 7 of chapter 20, we see that Abraham is a prophet. Well, this is kind of news to us, right? Uh, It's also the first time this term is used in the Bible about anyone, Abraham being a prophet. and Why? Why is that? Well, we see at the end of the chapter that Abimelech asks Abraham to pray on his behalf. Um, so that the Lord will um, basically what happens is God makes uh, Abimelech's wife and all the women of the area barren. Remember, Sarah was barren. And now God is making barrenness happen to these um, the people that have tried to take Sarah as a wife, which is um, she's already married to Abraham. So it's very sinful. And so uh, Abimelech says to Abraham, Abraham, at the end of this chapter, please uh, pray to your God on my behalf. Intercede for me is what he says. And so this idea of intercessory prayer makes Abraham a prophet. Okay, so when we hear prophet, we think somebody who can predict the future and, and almost very rarely does it mean that in scripture. Sometimes it does, but very rarely does it mean that. Usually what it means is someone bringing a message from the Lord to someone else. Okay, so, uh, so we have, you know, prophet, big P prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and people that have really re- received divine revelation from the Lord and they're bringing it uh, to people. But what about people like Nathan, you know, people like Nathan that go to David and just say, Hey, David, what you're doing, it's not right. You know, you're the guy that's upset the Lord. Um, Did there need to be any divine revelation for Nathan to be able to understand that there didn't need to be everybody in the kingdom pretty much kind of knew what was going on. That's another story we can look at some other time. But um, so somebody who's a prophet is just interceding between the Lord and uh, and another person. So that's what we see happening here. So the word prophet used first time for uh, Abraham. So this is where we kind of have to ask. We've had this covenant being made over and over again with Abraham. Abraham has had his name changed. By the way, let's talk about the name change for just a second. Who is affected by a name change? If 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 I were if someone were to change my name would that affect me most of all how often do i say my name out loud almost never who says my name out loud everybody else so a name change affects everyone else around me a lot more than it affects me so you can imagine someone with as much influence as abram Having to say, well, actually, my name is Abraham now. Oh, yeah, well, how'd that happen? Why'd you change your name? You can imagine that story that would have to be told or um, maybe just by hearing the change of name, oh, he's a father of many nations now. you're somebody who's very important. So what we see is God has had an effect in Abraham's life and now it is affecting everyone around. And so what we have to ask in a situation like this where Abraham is lying and he's getting other people in trouble and other people are suffering the consequences because Abraham has lied, We have to ask, what is Abraham's faith or lack of it? What is Abraham's obedience or lack of it telling the world about the Lord? And that's kind of the question that we have to ask ourselves out of these chapters, right? What is our faith? What is our obedience uh, telling the Lord, uh, telling other people about the Lord? So uh, I just want to look very quickly at... um, some stories that come to mind when I think about that concept. What is our faith? What is our obedience telling others about the Lord? If you look at what's going on with uh, Muslims in Africa, in Iran, in Syria in Saudi Arabia, you will see they're coming by droves to believe in Jesus Christ as their savior. They're converting from Islam to Christianity. They are leaving sometimes under pain of death. They are leaving Islam for Christ. They are having dreams about Isa, where Isa is—that's that's their name for Jesus—is calling them out, saying, "Believe in me." See, uh, Muslims believe in Jesus, and they believe that he was a great prophet. In fact, my friend told me that he's the most important prophet. He's the highest prophet. Uh, Muhammad is the last prophet, but Jesus is the greatest prophet, and they believe many of the same things that I believe about Jesus. But what they don't believe is that he actually died on the cross. They believe he was just made to appear as if he had died, and therefore he was not resurrected. And they also don't believe that he was the son of God. Well, you take those two things out of Christianity and you really don't have much left. You just have uh, kind of a a crazy old preacher wandering around uh, a forgettable part of the world. But it's those two claims that make Jesus who he is. And you see uh, Muslims waking up to that all over the world. Uh, I think about a man named Nabil Qureshi, who is no longer with us. He died a few years ago from cancer. He grew up Muslim and converted to Christianity in his college years. He was an apologist for Christianity, uh, as well as uh, helping to unravel the problems with Islam. He wrote a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. So if you're interested in Islam and how Islam and Christianity sort of um, uh, might be able to build a bridge between the two to get people to believe in Christ and trust in Christ, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus is probably a great place to start. It's an excellent book, and it's a very uh, personal book written by Nabil Qureshi. He's written several other books as well before he passed. Now, he became a Christian through the faith of a friend in college, and his name was David Wood. Uh, David still does lots of videos and things on YouTube. You can find his videos out there. Now, David himself grew up as an atheist. In fact, he went to prison for the attempted murder of his father at age 18. Uh, I think think he was uh, tried to uh, beat him to death, club him in the head with a hammer. And he was claiming morality was just merely societal rules that were beneath him. While he was in prison, he met a man named Randy, who was a Christian. David became a Christian as a result of Randy's influence in his life and even reconciled with his father, the father that he tried to murder. Now, I don't know why Randy was in prison. I wish I could tell you more about Randy's faith, but it's at least clear that he was not a cultural Christian. He was not a pew sitter. Okay. He was not a church member. He was a disciple. Um, he was not just born into Christianity. He'd really taken it seriously. And to be able to defeat David's atheist arguments, he must have become a devoted disciple of Jesus somehow. So you see whoever taught Randy and then Randy taught David and David taught Nabil. Nabil is, uh, teaching lots of other people such as me, such as anyone that reads his books. He sold thousands and thousands of books, lots of videos out there. Um, you see how the faith of one person can have such an impact in the world. One other example from a few years ago. You may remember uh, when uh, ISIS first started uh, martyring people, first started killing people, one of the first slayings was 21 Coptic martyrs that they took down to the beach on Libya and um, had video asking them to denounce Christ. And if they didn't denounce Christ, they would cut their throat. So the 21 men executed that they were traveling tradesmen working on a construction job. All were native Egyptians except for one who came from the African nation of Chad. And the murder of that one man would become the extremist's greatest failure. So captured without resistance and paraded before cameras, the executioners demanded each man identify his religious allegiance. When given the chance to deny the Christ and possibly live with a knife held to their throats, each of the brave 20 Coptic Christians declared the name of Jesus. And for that each was executed. They refused to deny their faith in the face of evil. The man from Chad or or Ghana, it's a little unclear. His name's, uh, I think his name is Matthew Evera. He was not a Christian when he was captured. Yet when he witnessed the dedication of the 20 to Jesus Christ, he remained with his co-workers and with his last words, declared the Lord's name as his savior. One uh, on camera, one of the terrorists asked Matthew, do you reject Christ? And you know what his response was? Their God is my God. He responded and he became one of the 21 men laying down their lives for their faith in Christ. And this episode, this horrific episode is represented in this icon, this image that was made by Tony Rezek, the 21 new martyrs of Libya. And I will put the link here in the comments so that you can click on it and look, look at it. As you see the link pop up there, um, take a look at it. And you'll see Jesus over the water with the 21 on the beach. He's calling his children home to him. You'll see the Coptics down there. They all have the face of Christ, except for one, this dark face right in the middle. That's Matthew. And he's right there in the center of them, gazing upon his Savior and theirs. What is our faith telling the world around us? About the Lord. Right now, we got a lot of people who are nervous, who are afraid, who are paranoid, and who are waiting on an answer. Genesis chapter 21 And the Lord singled out Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. And we see that the Lord gives them a child. Abraham circumcises Isaac, and Sarah says, Laughter has God made me. Whoever hears will laugh at me. And she said, who would have uttered to Abraham, Sarah is suckling sons, for I have born a son in his old age. After 25 years of Abraham fighting, struggling to be patient, struggling to trust, struggling to understand, trying to make it his own way, but ultimately trusting the Lord, the Lord finally begins to answer, the promise by giving him a son and by bringing them laughter. So what is our faith? What is our obedience telling the people around us right now? What can you do to bring someone delight in this very tense and fearful time? Think about what you can do to bring someone you know delight. And uh, I hope that you're able to do that within the next 24 hours. Delight someone that you care about. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.